Um, but this morning we're in Micah 4. So if you want to open your Bible to Micah 4, um, Micah is one of those less known prophets. We've been there for a few weeks now. Um, and this morning, one of the things that we are going to take a look at is hope. Um, hope is essential to life. Um, hope is a key ingredient to the way that we experience life. Um, and it's a key ingredient to genuine joy. Now, have you ever noticed that when we greet one another, you know, somebody comes in and you say, how are you doing? Generally, you get an I'm well, if people are using proper grammar rather than I'm good. Um, some say hanging in there. A couple folks will sit there saying, you know, living the life, right? Or living the dream. Uh, Mr. Geringer repeatedly says, better than I deserve. Some are more vulnerable. Uh, they share a little bit of their challenge or way that we could pray for them. But I would say generally, the response when we ask someone how they're doing is that they're above mediocre. Right? Is that what you normally hear? Rarely do we encounter someone who is directly saying they're not doing well or they're filled with hopelessness. A couple of months ago, I ran into someone that we had spent quite a bit of time with years ago and I asked them how they were doing and the response was terrible. And at first I thought they were joking because that's not normal. But then I realized that they were dead serious. And in that moment, I had a choice to make. Do I engage and see how I can care for them? Or do I go about life as if they hadn't pulled back the curtain? Thankfully, the Lord provided the opportunity and the words to engage. Now, I would say that there is a disconnect between our willingness to let others in on what we're experiencing. Because according to National Mental Health Associations, get this, about 25% of adults in Colorado are experiencing some type of treatment for mental health issues right now. Potentially another 25% should be. So one in four in this room currently are walking through something that they need help with. Potentially as many as one in two. So all you have to do is look to your side. But if our standard response is above mediocre, there's a disconnect. But mental health concerns, specifically feelings of hopelessness, they're not restricted for average adults. A few years ago, Studies showed that 38% of young people nationwide have persistent feelings of hopelessness. 38%. Devastatingly, last year in Canada, more than 10,000 medically assisted suicides. 10,000. See, in Canada, the elderly are now socially encouraged to find their own escape. So if hopelessness is so prevalent, 
why are we hesitant to mention it when people ask? I think it's because the enemy works to convince us that there's no hope, that there's no solution. The enemy wants us to remain in bondage to it, that it's inescapable, it's just simply part of life. And I believe that the Lord wants us to be free from that bondage. And this afternoon is a piece of help for us all. Hopelessness is debilitating. To dull the pain, many tend to try to mask it through leisure or excitement or alcohol or any other number of vices. Ever heard a phrase like, living for the weekend? I could use a stiff drink. It's five o'clock somewhere. Friends, that is not the way life is supposed to be. God did not design it that way. It's merely the product of sin in this world that occurred when Adam chose to disobey. And in this passage in Micah 4, God through the prophet is going to direct our minds back to God's plan for his people. God is going to reveal where hope, true hope, resides. From this passage, it's clear that there's only one group of people on earth who've been blessed with the potential, the actual potential to experience real hope. And those are followers of Jesus. Those who recognize sin turn to Jesus alone to find forgiveness where ultimate hope is provided. What we've walked through in the book so far is pretty discouraging. We see God's people choosing not to live in accordance with God's commands. We see judgment pronounced for their actions that's really on the horizon. I really appreciated Jason's excellent instruction about the importance of focusing on Christ as an answer. Remember his encouragement from last week. He said that the promise Micah speaks of is literally the breaker. The one who sets us free. Israel and Judah are being told by God what's going to come. He's going to discipline them because they've rejected his covenant. They've set aside his commands and refused to listen to his counsel. And that's not good news. But in 4, we get to the great news about the breaker when Messiah reigns on earth and fulfills the covenant promises of being the breaker. So let's look at Micah 4, first couple of verses. He writes, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Friends, this is the promise of Messiah, the promise of hope to come. 
Sure, there's references to Messiah throughout the Old Testament, but here is the specific promise. He's promised to come through the Davidic covenant. You guys all see that in there, right? Right in verse 2. Go to the house of Jacob. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And what is Jerusalem? The city of David. Remember when the Lord appeared to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, in a dream. He said, Joseph, son of who? David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Friends, Micah is saying Jesus is the one who will reign from the line of David as Savior forever and ever. And this changes everything. Micah is saying in, in these three verses, as we look into verse 3, that a day is coming when things are going to change. See, oppression is no longer going to rule. Unjust leaders will no longer be in power. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. I have to look back a little bit. It says, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. See, unjust rulers reign, exert power, and refuse to acknowledge it. But Micah said, hope is coming. And that's when he says, but it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established and people shall flow to it. Verse 2, and many nations shall come. See, the promise of hope is not reserved for the Israelites. Many nations will desire it. Verse 3, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways and that he may walk in his paths. See, when you read that, you have to realize that that is not normal. People don't naturally want to walk in his ways, that's not our nature. Our nature is to oppose His ways. We want what's best for us, or so we think. See, this type of response that people desire to be with the Lord requires the work of the Lord in people's hearts first. What makes us desire the Lord? Only the Lord Himself. So on that day, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. What can we expect? And we'll look at three things this morning. The first one is that we're going to see that the Lord judges justly. The second one we're going to look at is that the Lord redeems and He does it completely. And then the third thing we're going to look at is that the Lord strengthens and he strengthens perfectly. So let's start with the first one. He judges justly. Picking up in verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples. 
and shall decide for strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. He's describing life that's very different from what we know. See, we are surrounded by a host of unjust leaders. Think about what you've experienced in your lifetime. Anyone seen people jockeying for position? Anybody? Yeah? How about war upon war? Anybody? Nation against nation? Each entity battling for land or power or resources or whatever they believe they deserve? When I was little, I remember the adults around me talking about the Cold War and this Cuban Missile Crisis. I remember at 15 years old watching TV when Reagan challenged Mr. Gorbachev to tear down this wall. I remember Desert Storm that started when I was heading to college, wondering what would have been like had I enlisted like many of my friends. And today the threat of a global war is still a very present reality, is it not? Friends, that's why placing our hope in a national identity as America is a fool's errand. Christ didn't come to redeem society. Christ came to redeem people. He came to judge justly between those who know Him and those who do not. And scripture is clear that all those whom He draws to Himself are eternally His and secure. Now in any day, our life can change instantly. could be the external influence of another country. It could be the internal influence of a government that embraces totalitarianism. And that's why our hope should never be placed in our national identity. But simply in being His, for our hope is to be in God alone. See, Micah says that a day is coming when nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. One day God will reign and rule on earth judging justly, and we will finally experience true justice for all. But what happens then? Micah says that Jesus serves as a source of strength and encouragement says that no one on that day when the Lord returns, no one shall make them afraid. He says, we will walk in the name of our Lord our God forever and ever. There's this clear distinction between people who walk according to their God and those who walk in the name of the Lord. Friends, those who are saved by Jesus, whose hearts are turned towards the Lord, who go up to the mountain and say, let us sit, let us learn. 
They're saved by God, for God, to God. And if we're gods, then what do we have to fear as nation battles against nation? No matter what level of persecution we face, there is absolutely nothing to fear, eternally speaking. And yet, being a child of God does not prevent us from experiencing significant, real, painful tragedy and hardship in our daily life. Israel, who Micah is talking to, experienced significant tragedy through the centuries, have they not? And their challenges continue today. But what Micah is pointing out is that there is a future day when the Messiah returns so that no thing, nothing, nanka, nunka, nada, yet, will cause his people to fear again. No one shall make them afraid. That's the promise. And as we wait for that future hope, because Christ has come, we know He's come, we can by faith live with the hope of that future reality. And that means we can courageously withstand unjust judgment as we experience it today. When He comes, we can be assured that all things will be made new. Because our Lord will judge justly. Now secondly in the passage as we read on, we see that He redeems completely. Beginning in verse 6, we're going to see how the Lord promises to gather His people together. But as He does this, He clarifies that as He gathers them together, they experience affliction by His design. Verse 6, in that day, declares the Lord, the same day that he was talking about before, he says, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those, hear this, whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. See, those who are deemed insignificant by society, the outcast, the persecuted, the scattered, those are known by God and will be brought together as one nation, a mighty nation before Messiah under God. But it's not temporary, it's for all eternity. It says from this time forth and forevermore. That's a long time. And he continues in verse 8. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? 
Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. He's saying in verse 8 that we experience kingship as God's children, right? Once enemies of the king, now united with him. And he says, while Messiah is coming in that day, for now you're going to go into captivity. You're going to go into Babylon. For us, we are going to live in the world. As captives, they won't have a king to lead them. They'll be without counselors to help provide wisdom. And so one has to wonder what is the purpose behind that type of affliction. Doesn't sound fun, does it? purpose is always the same. Jason described last week that the warning is for their good. This discipline is for their good as well. He's using discipline, being sent into Babylon to draw his people back to himself in covenant loyalty and obedience that's motivated by love for God and love for their neighbors. What does the Lord require? Chapter 6. To do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. I want to dive deep for a couple of minutes and I want you to hang with me. Because in this passage, we find what's called a double fulfillment of prophecy. What's that? Well, a double fulfillment of prophecy is a prophecy which has present-day application for the author and a future application for the saints. So in Micah's day, the Israelites are about to be sent into Assyria, and Judah is going to be sent over to Babylon. Micah says that after a set period of time, God is going to rescue Judah from Babylon. And we know that after 70 years in captivity, Ezra and Nehemiah begin to lead captives back to Jerusalem. Meaning, that promise has been fulfilled already. In this sense, hope came for them as promised. At a point in history, they were rescued. For us, when Christ came as a baby, born in a stable, to live perfectly, to die for our sins, to be raised by God, the promise of old was fulfilled for us because hope has come. It's already taken place. 
but there's also a future fulfillment of a promise that we hinge our hope on today, and it's the same promise of future fulfillment that they hang their hope on. Micah says that hope is coming when Messiah returns and reigns here on earth. Verse 10, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. See, even though they were freed, they still suffered opposition from enemies. See, here's what we know from history. After their release from Babylon, both Greece and Rome exerted power and force upon them. Between Nehemiah and Jesus, while they developed some autonomy in Palestine, it never matched what they had under David and Solomon. When Titus conquered Jerusalem in AD 70, Palestine ceased to exist for nearly 2,000 years. Now, how's that fulfillment of prophecy? Well, today, Palestine occupies a fraction of the land promised to Abraham. And yet, if we look at Revelation 7, we learn that one day Israel will embrace Messiah in mass. But until that day, God will not abandon his people. Micah looks forward to a future hope. We too look forward to a future hope when Messiah returns. But as we look forward to that future hope, he says, from, for now, for now, you shall go out from that city. Though positionally we are heirs of the king, we are to live in this world while remembering whose we are. From the world we shall be rescued, it says, and from the world the Lord will redeem us. And that brings us to verse 11, where Micah tells us that the Lord strengthens perfectly. Verse 11, now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. What comes to mind when you hear now many nations are assembled against you? Can you relate? Do you feel that way, that the nations are against us? A quick look at culture tells us that the nations are against us. This week, Congress passed the Respect for Marriage Act trying to codify same-sex marriage as legitimate in the U.S. In doing this, our government attempted to exercise a right it does not have. See, Congress doesn't get to determine what constitutes marriage. Marriage is pre-government. Marriage was established by God for his purposes. 
but our nation assembles against us. So how can we think rightly about this? How do we respond? Micah provides a clear, concise answer. Hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. Verse 12, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan. Well, ultimately, what's the Lord's plan? Well, it's in the same verse. It says He's gathered them as sheaves through the threshing floor. Now, I know all of you have a threshing floor in your house. I'd imagine if I asked for a raise of hands that says, hey, what is a threshing floor? Most hands wouldn't go up. But you need to understand it. See, practically, the threshing floor is the place where the harvest is prepared. It's the place where the grain is separated from the straw so you can find the useful kernels. Often it's used scripturally to describe a place of both separation and revelation, separating those who are the Lord's and those who are not. That phrase right there that we find difficult to relate to potentially serves as the greatest source of hope for those in Micah's day. It should serve as a significant source of hope for us. See, we can look at Revelation 19 where we see that when the battle rages at Armageddon, the armies of the world are gathered as sheaves to the threshing floor. Even the leaders this week who celebrate their quote-unquote victory will be gathered as sheaves to the threshing floor, friends. That's the reality. Here's what we need to realize. That on that day, when the Lord returns, King Jesus, the Messiah of Israel and Savior of the church, whose earthly birth we're preparing to celebrate in a couple of weeks, will defeat all our enemies. God's people survive victorious. And it says that God will make us a mighty nation. An invincible nation. See, when Messiah reigns, God's law encompasses the earth and righteousness and justice prevail and that means hope will come. For me, I find it challenging to keep that future reality close enough to my own heart so that it impacts my daily life. I do. I look at the world around us and I can be filled with fear. I think about what is it like for the generations that we are raising. What are they going to walk through? So let's try to apply this to our daily life. That we leave here encouraged, not wondering. Maybe you're sitting here and you have a challenge that you're struggling to overcome. You may be dealing with 
the consequences of a choice that you've made. Maybe you're, you're dealing with something that's totally outside of your control. Both are very real realities. Maybe you've lost hope. Maybe there's some type of opportunity that's no longer available and you sense that your future is off the rails as a result of it. Maybe you've suffered loss in your life. I know many here have experienced loss of relationship or the physical loss of a close friend or family member. Maybe you're unemployed or underemployed. Financial difficulties seem debilitating. Maybe you're wondering if you're able to find employment again. Maybe you just need someone. Depression is a real thing for many. Its expression can be debilitating. I am grateful for the men that will be transparent enough to say this is what I'm dealing with, whether it's at a care group or on a Wednesday morning, because it allows us to pray better for them. They don't mask it. They don't say, yeah, I'm good. I'm above mediocre. They're saying I'm terrible. And friends, that's a good thing. In speaking with counselors over at Focus, depression that's resulted from being disconnected during the pandemic is the greatest condition they're working with folks to overcome. Our call volume is double what it's ever been and over 50% are related to depression. It's real. Maybe you're dealing with an ongoing battle with some particular sin in your life. Maybe you feel defeated because it seems to be an ever-present challenge that you're just simply tired of fighting. Could be an addictive behavior, anger, bitterness, lack of self-control. Maybe it's lust that consumes you. No matter how hard you fight in the battle, it seems hopeless. Ever been there? There is no way I could think through every situation that's represented in this room. But if you find yourself lacking hope today, Micah is speaking to you. Right now, this afternoon, He's saying no matter what situation you find yourself in, whether it's an invading army from the outside or a persistent sin from inside, our Lord Jesus Christ is the source of hope. He's true hope. Sadly, the world tells us that finding a new boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse solves the problem. Or a new job will be the answer. Maybe it's a new car. You know, moving to a new state. Using alcohol or drugs. Friends, those are just temporary distractions from hopelessness. There's only one answer and that's Jesus. He is the perfect, complete ever-present, ever-available, wholly satisfying hope for a hopeless life. 
Friends, in Jesus, hope has come. That's what we get to celebrate this Christmas. That hope has come. What's amazing is that while the world tries to destroy it by removing Christ out of Christmas, everywhere around the globe we're reminded that hope has come. Our friends here remind us this way. And God through Micah wants you to desire the Lord Jesus more than anything else. That's what he wants, friends. He wants you to pursue Jesus. He wants you to bow down before him in awe and sit with him in prayer and listen to him more through his word to overcome any sense of hopelessness you may face. We were talking about Abraham as a family a couple of weeks ago. You guys know who Abraham is, right? Yeah? You know, he's the guy who was promised that his descendants would be as plentiful as the stars in the sky. Anybody started counting these things yet? Anybody? It'd be fun. Um, and he's told this by the Lord while he's childless and he's 100 years old and his wife is, you know, a young pup at 90. Like if anybody had a reason to be hopeless and laugh at God's promise, which is probably why his son was named Isaac, that's beside the point. He had plenty. But listen to the Apostle Paul recount Abraham's experience. This is in Romans 4, verses 18 through 23. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Paul says he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith did not waver. When the things around him told him that what God had to say was crazy, his faith didn't change. His hope remained. See, when we begin to lose hope, it's because we begin to forget that we can trust God with our circumstances. For myself, I put my myself in the position of God, that I can organize and orchestrate my circumstances better than God can. See, when we, when, we, when we begin to doubt God, it's because we forget that He is completely sovereign and He does things for our good. See, he doesn't just allow things to happen to us. If he's the Lord of all things, and the creator of all things, and the sustainer of all things, it's not that he simply allows things to happen. He wills it for our good.
In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. By thinking in my mind that God allows it, I remind myself that God is not sovereign. By reframing my words from allow to will, I remind myself that God is completely sovereign. Brothers and sisters, how would you describe your confidence in the Lord? For those who are caregiver leaders wondering where the questions are, there's your question. How would you describe your confidence in the Lord? That's what it comes down to. If asked by someone that you trust and you're willing to be transparent with, are you fully convinced that God can work out the area of your life where you tend to lose hope? Are you? If not, look here. Hope has already come. If you need your hope refreshed, turn to Christ. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, do it. Do it now. It's simple. Give your life to Him. Confess your sin. Turn. Just say, I need to be forgiven. I was one of those who did not want to go up to the mountain. If you receive Him as your Lord and Savior, you recognize that He died and rose again for you. And for the followers of Jesus in this room who are the only humans who should have hope, He is for you today. In Him, hope is found. Run to Him. Don't just turn, run. Open his word, hear the truth. As you hear it, I pray you can hear it in the way he intends it to be delivered with love and with compassion. Friends, if God places you in a position to bring truth to bear in others' lives, do it with love and gentleness and humility because that's what we need. Make every effort to love and care and serve others in ways that help him believe the truth. Friends, truth, God's truth, the only truth can be trusted completely. It's the truth. So place your hope in the truth. And wait on the truth to guide your life and to reframe your thinking and to encourage your heart. See, if you seek Him, God by His Spirit through His Word will speak to you. He'll minister to you. He'll care for you. He'll encourage you better than anything else can. So turn to Him. Look to Him. Depend on Him. Run to Him. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, is greater than your challenge.
He's greater than any missed opportunity. He's greater than your loss. He's greater than your financial hardship. He's greater than your depression. He's greater than your sin. Whatever you're facing, he's greater than it. And he's for you. Hope has come. 2,000 years ago, hope came down, and one day on that perfect day, hope will return back to Micah. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And there he will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those who he's afflicted. And he says, in the lame I will make the remnant. And those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you are our Lord. You are Savior. You alone are deserving and worthy of praise. Your name is to be lifted high. I simply ask you to come and encourage the hearts of your children that our hope would be holy and completely and confidently placed in you and you alone. It's in your son's name I pray, amen.